Now, I know that several of you are new to our church, and you may not know, but that's one of the most joyful people you'll ever meet in your life. Her name is Megan Lauderdale, and she is studying at A&M right now, but she graduated high school here in Weatherford and uh, grew up in our church and has been there for a couple of years now. And this summer, she already told you what she's going to be doing this summer. She's on mission. Uh, we have, over the next few weeks, you're going to be meeting some people and you're going to be seeing some videos uh, of people from right here in our church that are out on mission and are going to be out on mission this summer doing even more things. And here's how we support them as a church, just to let you know. We give to missions. Um, just this last month, we gave to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, we set a goal of $8,000 and brought in a little over $8,300. So that was your generosity that helped support um, North American missions. And then our missions team also works together uh, with specific requests like this. Megan's doing that, and our mission team has already uh, given funds to her. But we can only do that as you give funds. So if you want to help support Megan and other missionaries like that, if you'll just give above and beyond your offering and just write missions on it, uh, that money goes to support uh, Megan, and you're going to hear some about Alexis, you're going to meet the bowlings next week, next week. you're going to hear all these things that we're doing to support missions um, all over. And if you have a heart for any of these individually, just contact them and give to them and support them in what they're doing. Um, we're doing this as a church collectively, but I know many of you might have specific personal relationships with these and you may want to support some of them a little bit more, that's okay. Uh, you can do it that way as well. And so we are talking about what it means to live life on mission. And we don't always have to go to South, South Africa and make wells, even though that sounds kind of exciting to me. I don't know about you. Uh, but what does it mean for us to just live our life on mission daily, understanding that God has put us at this place at this time and has given us the opportunity to glorify him by living our life on mission for him. And we have been walking through the book of Acts this year, and we're going to be looking today in Acts, starting uh, in chapter 5, verse 17. And it's, a, it's a, a big story here that's happening, but let me catch you up a little bit. We have the disciples who have come together. The Holy Spirit's been on them, and they have gone out and started witnessing in the city of Jerusalem. They've had thousands of people starting to give attention to them and come to Christ and begin to walk uh, with him, the apostles had done some miracles in the town that had gotten people's attention. And before this, they had uh, gotten the attention of the religious leaders who had come together and said, hey, hey, look, you need to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And they went to the Lord about that, it says in Acts chapter 4, and they prayed, okay, what are we supposed to do about this? And God, we, we know what we're being told over here, but we know what you're telling us to do. And so we need you to, to answer us and help uh, us know how to live and they prayed that God would fill them with his spirit and that they would speak the word of God boldly as he led them to and it says that God answered that prayer by shaking the place that they were in and that's again one of the prayers that we've been praying at 431 because that's from Acts 431 we've been praying every day at 431 and I've, I've been excited to begin to hear the stories of people in our church that are actually not just praying the prayer but that are looking for opportunities to do that it's been exciting to hear how people have been inviting others to, to come to know Christ or be a part of their life or come to church or do whatever they can to be out there and doing this as God has given them opportunity. And we invite you to join us in that as well. And so what's happened up to this point in time is that the disciples were doing these acts and these works again. 
and <coughs> Peter, <coughs> Peter um, comes together and it says in verse 17 that the high priest rose up, meaning that the religious leaders of the time started finally taking notice and said, I don't really like what's going on. It says the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Now, here's what's going on behind the scene. The party of the Sadducees, these are members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is this Jewish council that met together the religious leaders. And if they didn't like what was going on or they needed to do something, they would bring people on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And the Sadducees were part of this group. And they were a part of the group that didn't believe in, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in that part of, of walking with Christ and what it, what it is to know the spirituality of knowing him. And so they were frustrated because what Peter and John were preaching was that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And so they were going, I don't, whoa, 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 we don't like this because we don't believe in the resurrection. We don't believe in life. We, we don't believe in this stuff. And so what's even more ironic is it says that in verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. And then in verse 19, but an angel of the Lord, who the Sadducees did not believe in, opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, now you go stand in the temple and tell people about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So you get the picture here. The religious leaders, the political leaders of the time, they're coming against the disciples and they're telling them, hey, look, you can't do this stuff anymore. We don't need you talking this way. We don't need you spreading this word. You need to stop doing this. But every time that that opposition comes, God answers in a different way. The first time, he shook the place where they were praying together to say, hey, I'm here with you. And then this time, as they get thrown in jail, he sends an angel that opens it. And he says, okay, now go right back and do what you were doing. Now, we've got to be careful with a passage like this. I'm just going to say this. Because some of us can read that and go, see Government can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. No, 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 no. That's not what this passage is saying, okay? Because when you read the fullness of Scripture, you also see that we're to pray for those that are in leadership over us, that there's nobody that's been in leadership over us that wasn't placed there by the Lord himself, that he's aware of those things, and that we're supposed to live in harmony as much as possible. And, but what we see happening here is something that's very supernatural, and it's something that's led by God. And there may be a time... When you're asked to take a stand that's difficult, there may be a time that you're asked to push against the grain, but you better be as clear as these people were that it's time to do that, or you're just doing something probably out of your own arrogance rather than the Spirit of God. And there's only one thing that can determine that, and that's your heart. So I'm not going to preach about that today. We're just going to tell the story. You've got to know your own heart and what God is leading you to do. If God is leading you to be this bold and take that type of a stand, do it. But I will just tell you this understand that we're in a culture that sees Christianity and they understand it from the outside in more for what we're against than what we're for. Amen? And we don't really need to take another stand for something that we're against unless God has truly and sincerely laid it on your heart. What we need to do is take a stand for what we're for and what we're called to do and we're supposed to be led by love to go out and share that gospel message with others. And so God, yes, God does raise up certain people to do these things as we see here. But you got to be careful with a message like this. Not saying not to, not saying to. Saying you have to be led by the Spirit. That's what you've got to do. And so you got to be real careful with that. And so they were obviously led by the Spirit to go out and do these type of things. And it says that the high priest and those who were with him arrived. They convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have these people that they threw in jail to be brought out. 
But when the servants got there, they didn't find them in jail. So they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards doing what they were supposed to do, standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we didn't find anyone inside. So as the captain of the temple police and the chief priest heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what's going to come of this. And then someone came and reported to them, look, the men that you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid that some people might stone them. You see, this uprising had happened so much and people were interested. They were like, we understand that there's something going on here. So we don't like it. We want to bring them in. We want to tell them to stop. But we're not going to be forceful about it at this point in time. But look what happens. It says, after they brought him in, they had him stand before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? Look, <clears throat> you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And then Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. And see, there's, there's, your, there's your clue about how do we, how do we determine... God has gifted you, God has called you, and you have the opportunity to live a bold faith and take a bold stance in the, in the opportunities that God has given you, and you should be doing those things. You must obey God rather than people, meaning we're looking to live things God's way, not just the way that people are telling us to or everything. We're, we're looking to God's word first, God's word first. Verse 30 says, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And look at this. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So you see what's happening at this point in time. The apostles are saying, you can say everything that you want to us, but we have seen this. We are witnesses of this. We can't deny what we have experienced and what we know to be true. So it really doesn't matter what you say at this point in time because there's something that was in here that's more true than what you're telling me. Now, look at how it kind of escalates here quickly. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So we've moved from we want to bring them in and we don't want to mess with anybody. We don't want the people mad at us. And so Peter stands up and gives his testimony. Now, isn't this funny? That oftentimes we think that I'm going to share my testimony with other people. And they're going to love me. And they're going to love what I have to say. But that's not what happened here. They share the testimony of the truth of what happened. And it says that this enraged these people to the point that they wanted to kill him. And then we have this story where it talks through this, this Pharisee named... Uh, I always have to look at his name very closely because I'll call him something else. G Gamaliel, okay? And he was a teacher of the law. He was respected by all the people. He was part of the Sanhedrin. And he gives a very pragmatic thing. He goes, look, basically, you need to let these men do what they're doing because if what they're doing is of their own power or kind of their own thing, then it's going to die out. You need to remember, there was a guy who did this before it died out. There was a guy who did this before it died out. But look, guys. If what they're saying is true and what they're doing is truly coming from God and we're standing against that, then we're going to be trying to stand against God and it's never going to work. And so with those words, he persuaded them to go, hey, just, let's just chill out. Let's just calm down. And so 
They, they were going to let them go. But before they let them go, they ordered that they not speak in the name of Jesus. And they had them flogged, which means they had them beaten in front of everybody. We pick it up again in verse 41. And it says, and they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I know that's a big, long passage, but you catch what's going on here. Religious leaders are saying, we don't like what you're doing. It enraged them so much to the point that they were, they were so sure of their faith and so unwilling to compromise on it that it made the others want to, to notch their game up and up and up and up and up to the point that they said, we're just ready to kill you over this. And finally, some, some sense came into the room and they calmed down and they basically came to the point that said, look, we're going to beat you and we're going to order you not to do this again. And so imagine this. Imagine that you're trying to, to do something like this and, and you run into this type of opposition. Now, I don't know about you, but I can throw really extravagant, massive, beautiful pity parties. Anybody else? Can you all throw good pity? I can throw extravagant pity parties. When things don't go my way, man, I'm good at that. I, I can pout with the best of them. I, I don't have to look like I'm pouting, but boy, I can, I can make it go out there. You know what I mean? And things like that can just kind of ruin my day. They can steal my joy. They can... They can do a lot of things to me when stuff doesn't go my way. But when I see what's happening here, and you have these, these men and these women who are following Christ, and they're being told that, look, you need to stop, you need to do it this way, you need to do it like this, so much so to the point that they're getting arrested, they're getting thrown in jail, they're getting beaten, they're getting threatened to be killed. And, and yet they walk away from this place. It says they got beaten publicly, they got told not to do this anymore, and they walked away rejoicing. Yay, we got beaten. We got beaten for Jesus. It was awesome. I'm like, that's, that's different. I don't, I don't remember a single spanking I ever received that I turned around to my parents and went, thank you. This was incredible. I loved this one. It was great. As a matter of fact, the most memorable one, I was getting a little older in life and I determined, I told my dad, I'm not crying. He goes, oh, you're crying. And we, we, he won. I just thought I'd tell you on that. You know what I mean? You ever had those type of things? Now, those are the ones I remember when I was obstinate and I was against this. I don't ever remember walking away from these things going, I feel good about this, all right? But what we see here is there's something in the lives of the disciples. Here's what I want you to pick up. There's something in the life of the disciples at this point in time that gives them just this unstoppable joy. It's just an unstoppable joy. It doesn't matter what's happening all around them. Not that they're oblivious to it. Not that they're naive but that they're fully aware of what's going on around them. But yet in the midst of it, there is an unstoppable joy. I want that. I want that. Because I know that there are things that go around in my life all the time that just tend to knock me down and bring me down. What is this source of unstoppable joy? Well, I want to look at that this morning. Unstoppable joy, the first thing that unstoppable joy requires, unstoppable joy requires a bold faith. We talked a little bit about a bold faith last week. But it, it simply means this, that there's something that you have in your life that's bigger than you. And so I believe that unstoppable joy, quite honestly, I don't believe you can have that true joy without having a relationship with Jesus. I, I think it's absolutely impossible. 
That's where I'm just going to draw the line and unapologetically say that. I don't believe you can have true joy without having Jesus Christ in your life. Can you be happy without Jesus? Temporarily. Can you have good things happen in your life without Jesus? Sure. Okay. But you can't have true joy without Jesus Christ. Without placing your faith in the one who will never fail, you can't have unstoppable joy. Does that mean you're going to go sad all the time? No, that's not what we're saying. It just means that times where you're happy and times that you're sad are going to be real temporary, but more so that you'll be the type of person without Jesus Christ in your life whose mood and whose disposition is dictated mostly by the circumstances that are currently happening in your life. Now, we tend to be that way anyway, right? So how can I have a joy that goes beyond my circumstances? That's what we're really talking about today. How do I have an unstoppable joy? Because circumstances sometimes are very difficult to live with. Let me ask you this question. Of 100% of the circumstances in your life, okay, you have 100% of them you have to think about here for just a minute. How many of them do you have 100% control of? Now think about that for a minute. We might sit here and want to say, Man, maybe a higher number. Maybe I, I control a lot of these type of things. But truth, let's think about this. How many of the 100% of your circumstances would you like to change? Then you start realizing how little control you have over these type of things. Wait a minute here. My income, would you like to change your income? Health, would you like to change your, your health? Your relationships, would you like to change your relationships? How about the decisions your children are making? Anybody would like to change those? Be great. About past mistakes, would you like to go back and, and have a do-over on past mistakes? You see what I'm talking about? Let's now get beyond ourselves and think about these things. How, how much of our circumstances can we control when we talk about things like world hunger? How much of, the, of our circumstances can we control when we talk about poverty here in the U.S. and all over the world? When we talk about global conflict and these things that are happening in the news today? How about politics? <laughs> we all love to control those. Sometimes we just want to choke those things, but we just want to control those, those type of things. When you think about it seriously for just a minute, it doesn't take you long to realize that as much as you would like to be, we're not in control of much of what is happening that could have an impact on our joy in life. There are a ton of things that are happening in our life that go beyond our scope of control. And this is true for the apostles that are happening here right now. They are trying to live their life for Christ, but all these things that keep happening outside of this, they're, they're truly beyond their control. They just have to figure out how to walk through those type of things. And so what are the choices that we have when we become a person that understands, hey, you know what? There's a lot of things in life that go beyond my control. There's a lot of things that happen in life the way that I don't want them to happen. There's a lot of things that happen in life that I don't necessarily like or understand. How do I have joy in the midst of that, well, you have to put your faith in something that's greater than your circumstances. And that's why I believe you can't have joy without Jesus. You absolutely can't. So simply put, I, I encourage everyone to think about what it means to hold on to God. That's what I need to have unstoppable joy. I have to hold on to God. All right? We're gonna, I'm going to give you a, a, a little acrostic today to hold on to uh, with holding on to God. Okay? The first thing that you need to hold on to God is you need humility. And humility, very simply put, is this. You, you need to acknowledge that you are not the center of the known universe. That's, that's humility. That's difficult. I, I'm not, we, we chuckle at that at times. And most of the time I chuckle at that because 
there are times when I believe that I'm the center of the known universe. And I just think if everybody would listen and do things my way, this would be easier. But humility comes, brings you to the point where you understand I'm, I'm not the center of the known universe. I, I'm not the center of all things. I, I'm, I'm here. I've got gifts. I've got opinions. I've got education. I've got experience. I have talent. I have input. There are things that I can bring to the table. So I'm not nothing. That's not, humility doesn't say that, oh, I'm nothing. I'm, no, more, no, that's not it. Humility is just a sense of going, you know what? It's not all about me. It doesn't all center around me. And that's the first step when you have humility. Holding on to God requires humility. Holding on to God requires obedience, okay? Obedience. We choose to live life by the commands of God. That's obedience. So first I'm humble. I realize I'm not the center of the known universe. And then I have obedience. I'm saying I'm going to choose to do things God's way. What did the apostles say? We must obey God rather than men. Okay, so that's obedience. We choose to obey God's word and God's way. Who, by the way, happens to be the center of all things and the source of all things. And so we come to that point where we understand it's not me, it is God. And so I'm going to obey his way. And then as we're holding on to God, we have to love. We have to love. It's the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked, can you narrow all this down for us? Can you just tell me how to live? He said, it's real simple, actually. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, it's the source of all things. It starts with him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and then the second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there you have. Humility, it's not all about me. Obedience, it is all about God. I'm going to do what he says. And what he tells me to do first is love. Love him and then love others. And so now my life now has a different direction. You, you, I, we could just stop at whole this morning. It would be okay because it's still some good stuff here. And you can kind of see this in this story. That the apostles had come to the place where they go, I understand it's not all about me. I understand it's about God. It's not, my, it's not about this all happening the way that I would like it to happen. It's about God being in charge of this. So, God, I'm going to keep doing what you tell me to do. But I tell you, at the, at the motivating point of all these things was a sincere love for God and a love for those that they were trying to reach out to. It, they, they did not find joy. Let me hear me on this. They did not find joy in going against the grain. They didn't stand up and put that on their resume that we stood up to these people and we stood up to these people. Their motivation was saying we just loved God and we kept doing what he told us to do and we trusted that he was going to bring the right things all together in this. Because I promise you they struggled going, Should, do we really, is there another way to do it? How can we do this? It, it, there was love that was motivating these things. And then the D on this is that there has to be a devotion. And that's what we see living out here, a devotion. Staying strong and consistent in your faith. That's devotion. Stay strong and consistent in your faith. You seek daily to know God more and to live out his word no matter the circumstance that's happening around you. That's devotion. Look what Peter and the disciples did here. They, they let their little light shine, right? Hide it under a bush. No, I'm going to let it shine. Okay? They chose to love God no matter the circumstances and to stay devoted in their faith to him, staying strong and consistent in their faith no matter what the circumstance said they were devoted. Now, let's just have a little 
reality check moment here. That there are many people, and you may be one of them, and I'm not, I'm not trying to talk about you, I'm trying to talk to you this morning. There are many people who have this idea that, well, if I follow Christ and if I do everything he tells me to do, then I shouldn't run into any difficulties in life. And, and I shouldn't run into these type of opposition. I shouldn't run into this type of stuff. And when they do, it, it causes them to go, well, that didn't work. And they kind of take God and they put it aside and they, they try to find something else that doesn't bring difficulty in life. Let me go ahead and help you. We'll fast forward. There's nothing you're going to do in life that's not difficult. Amen? We can all pray and go home after that one. You can just sit on that for a little bit. And, and the Christian faith is no different. There's going to be difficulty that comes in it. And there's a quote, I think it's first attributed to Charles Swindoll, but it goes around and goes around because it's a good quote. It goes something like this, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Well, that full quote actually is this. Charles Swindoll says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on my life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past. It's more important than education, than money, then circumstances, then failures, then successes, then what other people think, say, or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude that we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. You are in charge of your attitude. I can't say any better, so I just took his words. That's it. We're in charge of our attitudes. But where does the right attitude come from? Where, where does this attitude that I can look at these circumstances and still have joy, where does that come from? It comes from perspective. You, you, you have to have a, a right perspective. And that's our next blank. You have to have a proper perspective if you're going to have unstoppable joy. Just say it this way. If you have unrealistic expectations, you're going to live life with unmet expectations constantly because your expectations are unrealistic. You have to have a proper perspective. You have to know how things are going to work. Have a right outlook on the world. Here's the right outlook on the world. And this is, it may sound grim, but I promise you it's not. The world is broken. It's broken. We are not living in the world that God intended. Genesis chapter 3 covers that for us. We, we go on and we find out in Scripture that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we live in a world that's been broken by sin. If we, if we don't want to comprehend the world, let's just say it this way. I am broken. I'm a broken person. I am not functioning fully the way that God intends for me to function. And as much as I love him in this life and give my everything to him, I'm still going to be a broken person this side of heaven or this side of Jesus Christ's return. There's always going to be something in my heart that feels like things are just a little bit off. You know why? Because things are just a little bit off. And that's just the truth. So coming to know Christ doesn't fix the whole world. It fixes your perspective and knowing 
where this world is going and what's coming. Now, listen, in my brokenness, I need to understand that life's going to have its share of difficulties. Some of them are brought on by my own brokenness. Some of them are just brought on by the brokenness of the world. Now, a quick side note. Let me give you a little word of hope in this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, and as a person who has put his faith in Jesus Christ, let me tell you this, I'm a new creation. I am a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. My sins are forgiven. I know that. I have joy in Christ. I am in awe of the fact that he can look at someone like me who's done what I've done, said what I've said, been through what I've been through, and said, your sins are forgiven and I'll take your place in this. That's, that's true, and so I have joy in that. But my consequences of my sin are still evident at times in my life. I have scars that I can look at at times, and, and I become brokenhearted. And I'll just tell you this, I don't know if this is something, and some of you, we had, a, we had a discussion about age before, so I'll use this word today. Some of you who are more experienced at life than I, we'll just say it that way, maybe can tell me if this is just normal or if I'm just weird. But it seems like even the further away that I get of decisions that I made, even in my teenage years and other stuff like that, and I, I look back on those now, and even though I know I'm forgiven, and even though some of those have been resolved, the more I understand about what Christ has done, sometimes I look at those things, and I just, still, I just get real sad. I just look back, and I just get brokenhearted at times and just go, God, I wish I would have done something different, and there's still nothing I can do, and that's never going to be resolved even though I'm a new creation. You know, those scars remind us of something. I got one right here on my left eye that reminds me of a nine iron given to me by my brother, okay? I remember that, you know, that, that's, that's stuff that, that happens as you grow up. We have those scars, and they remind us of things, and sometimes it breaks our heart. And we need to understand that those come from a broken world. Following Jesus does not make life easy. It makes life worth it, though. Following Jesus isn't going to take all those things away and sugarcoat them. It's just going to say that you're forgiven and it's worth it. A right perspective will help you move on. 1 Peter 4.12, Peter writes these words. He says, dear friends, now look, we understand from Peter in the book of Acts, right, of what's happened to him, how he's been put on trial, how he's been persecuted. And then look at the words he writes. It says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you're ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Those are the words of a man that can get beaten for the name of Christ and walk away rejoicing, saying it's worth it. It's worth it. So that's what we need to understand. Life might not be easy, but it's worth it with Jesus. And so then it leads us to this, that you have this. You have a courageous choice. Joy requires a courageous choice, not a naive choice, but a courageous choice. It requires looking, first of all, at yourself closely, 
and honestly and coming to the point that you realize that there's not enough in here and in you that can make things right. It's not there. That's the first courageous choice you have to, to understand is that there's not enough in here to be able to make the world right. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if living for self, man, if living for self is not going to bring joy, then what do I live for? <laughs> Good question. Live for the one who fully knows you and fully loves you. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Live for Jesus and you will find joy. You will find unstoppable joy in the midst of whatever circumstances life brings. Verse 40 of this passage again says, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So just know this, when, not if, but when life throws something at you that you don't want, when life throws something at you that doesn't go your way, you need to understand what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? And I just want to tell you this morning, if you're not holding on to Jesus, I pray that you would come to know him today because he's worth holding on to. So we'll just close it out with this question for you today. Will I choose joy today?